pray. Uh, Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for uh, this time as we do each week. It is a privilege. Uh, though it is a regular thing, I pray we don't view it as common. I pray that we would see it for the blessing that it is. I'm thankful that your word does a work in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit does a work in our hearts that goes beyond ability to teach or clarity in conversation. But when we're obedient to engage the word, when we're obedient to submit to the word, uh, I'm thankful for the beauty that follows, that you do a work in the souls of men and women that none of us could accomplish on our own. And so I pray that that would happen tonight. I also pray, Lord, that as we finish up chapter 33 and uh, finish um, talking about reconciliation for now, and as we move into some very difficult issues in chapter 34, I pray that uh, I pray for gentleness and I pray for clarity. I pray against confusion. And, uh, I pray uh, I pray for truth to be heard, to be trumpeted, and to be cherished and treasured. Lord, we love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Genesis 33, please. I am glad you're here. I do value our time. And uh, these last few weeks, we've been talking about the difficulties and the difficult realities in relationships where it's really, if we're honest about it, it is hard work to keep good friendships and good relationships and things good in marriage and things good if you're in dating relationships. Um, it's not just easy. It, it takes work. Uh, conflict is a reality, and we have a never-ending need for pursuit of reconciliation. Let me say that again. We have a never-ending need for the pursuit of reconciliation. As long as we struggle with sin every moment of every day, there will be need for repentance and movement towards reconciliation. Injustice is not uncommon. So that means that it's not rare that you would be sinned against or that you may sin against someone else. We can be very thankful in those times that it is not us that bear their sin, but it is Christ. In Genesis 33, what we've seen is Jacob having to come back to Esau. And last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. And so we've gone through this the last few weeks, and we saw that they were reconciled, but it wasn't a perfect reconciliation. It was a believer and a non-believer reconciliation. And it led us to view these different types of reconciliation. And what it really did was as we went through Genesis 33, I'd encourage you to keep your finger there, but go ahead and turn over to Matthew 18. What we found was that there is a difference between being reconciled with an unbeliever, and it can happen, it happened there. They were reconciled, but they weren't going in buddy-buddy uh, on all of their pursuits. There needed to be some boundaries. Uh, for many of us in our relationships, friendships, the only way that a healthy relationship or friendship can exist is because of boundaries that we put in place by the wisdom given to us by God and His Word. It can't just be free-for-all all the time and, you know, the kind of person that maybe you don't want them in your house every day eating food from your pantry and mooching off of you. Maybe it's, we're buddies, but you can't come here every day. I don't have that problem. It sounds like I do as I say that, but um, there, there may be something where, hey, we can't spend three hours on the phone every day, but I love you, and we're just going to set up some boundaries to make this healthy. Sometimes a relationship can't even exist in a healthy manner without the boundaries that need to be put in place. But we found that 
There are differences between being reconciled between a believer and a non-believer. There are differences between being reconciled uh, between two believers who are maybe members of the different, different churches. And we found that there's a difference uh, between being reconciled between two believers in the same body. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's a good thing. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you. What are some reasons, just real quick, what are some reasons that you would go to someone and say, hey, this is an issue and I see it as an issue. What are some reasons that they would reject that? I mean, practically, if if you actually go and do what step one says to do and they say, no, I reject that. What are some reasons that maybe they would reject that? Pride? Different perspective. Yeah, that, that covers much. Uh, the, uh, what I'm wanting us to see there is that I may have a pers- I love that you said different perspectives because I may have a perspective that someone has sinned against me. And I may go to them and they may say, no, no, no. In fact, I believe you have sinned against me. And I could say, what do you mean I have sinned against you? And they could say, well, this, this, and this. And I could say, oh, well, those three things would make more sense as to why you said this. And then you find yourselves in a conversation working towards reconciliation in a peaceful manner. But if you skip step one, that's not, not even possible. That's not even available. It's not on the table. You've taken it off the table. So I don't want us to just picture some evil, crazy person in step one. That's not always the case. Sometimes you go to someone and say, hey, let's look at this, and you'll find that both of you have sin to repent from, to turn from. It's not just, I mean, that, that's why the call is so high to remove the plank from your own eye before you remove the speck from your brother's eye. Still tend to the speck, but don't neglect the plank. So when you go to someone, they may say, I have some other things you need to take into consideration. Yeah. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. There's some dynamics there to consider that we'll talk about. It if, we're going to look at Ephesians four. We're one, so your sin is is really um, if we are one in community and there's one spirit, uh, one baptism, one faith, um, then there's no way that your sin can just not affect the body. Uh, however, um, there are times where you may see someone sinning against someone else, and it's not always the, I mean, we're always supposed to speak truth into the situation of injustice, but it's not always the time to step in and do something that maybe this person should have done. Because there's a lot of times that someone has sinned against, and they just roll over and take it, and you just get kicked and kicked and kicked and kicked. And there may be a time to speak truth to them, but... Um, there's a reality that sometimes you'll see someone sinned against and it's a responsibility that that person has to go to this person. That doesn't mean you're totally just dis- hands off, I'm not going to do anything. But it also doesn't mean to just jump in. And it's sensitive. I mean, you're talking about sensitive issues where we all want reconciliation. So if your bro- it does say, if your brother sins against you. So we're, we're seeing a situation, particularly in Matthew 18, that we're talking about that. But there are other situations where you may just see sin. Um, but within one body where we're supposed to be completely united in Christ, 
Sin is what divides. Sin is what makes it so that reconciliation isn't okay because we are reconciled to the truth. And when you sin, you are disregarding the truth. And so um, that's why this whole process, I'm glad you asked that question because I want to make sure as we go through this whole process and consider it, um, it is careful. It takes tedious um, time to uh, weigh through, th- through matters to make sure you are in the right. It takes prayer. A lot of times when we see when we are sinned against or we see someone who we love sinned against, we bypass prayer, we bypass reason, we bypass reality, and we just go in for the kill. And we got to be more careful about that because, again, injustice is not uncommon. And so these are things that we will encounter every day. Yeah? What are some other versions that... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which makes a lot more sense given what we are in Christ and in unity in the body. Um, so for those outside of the church, the reality that we've come to is you cannot expect uh, peace rightly with someone who's not at peace with God. We are only hated by the world because Christ was hated first and it is Christ in us that is hated. We love our enemies, we pray for those who persecute us, and we speak truth into those situations where there is injustice, giving an account with hope, for our hope, with gentleness and respect. I'm covering this quickly because we spent the last three weeks looking at the details. Feel free to go online and listen again. For those who are believers but members of another church, um, that's where we spent a lot of time the last two weeks because I think most of us sitting here, if we need to be reconciled with someone or there's differences, that's probably happening in large part within other friends or family members who are maybe members of another church. And you find yourself, I mean, it's a real reality to find yourself in a conversation where you have family members who have seen the best and the worst of each other sitting there looking at each other saying, I don't know what to do with you. You believe this and I believe this and we're supposedly both Christians. I don't know what to do with you. That's a very real situation for a lot of people in this church even. Uh, And I think in many churches. According to Romans 14, it's very, a, a very likely reality that we can have different beliefs in the same faith. Now, I'm not watering anything down. I'm not being wishy-washy and saying, to each his own. There's a very big difference between to each his own and whatever works for you and be fully convinced as to what you believe because you can have different beliefs in the same faith. There's a big difference between those two. So don't hear me wrong. Don't hear wishy-washy like, whatever works for you today or tomorrow, I'm saying that you're to be fully convinced as to what you believe. That takes wishy-washy out of the equation. Um, However, what we'll find is that my rightness or your rightness over someone is not a sufficient aroma. If you disagree with someone, you cannot say, um, well, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to prove you wrong, and that'll be a sweet aroma to God first and then those around us. <laughs> That's not the way it works. Um, the aroma is Christ, who is sufficient for these things. The answer is well, no one. Jesus is. And uh, it's Christ in us that is the sweet aroma. Christ alone is sufficient. Our greatest concern is not what others think, but that, that we are fully convinced as to what we believe while doing our gut-level best to represent Christ with gentleness and peace. Oftentimes, our differences are not a matter of being wrong. Our greater concern is that we don't want someone else to think that we're wrong. So we go to the nth degree and just, you know, I've got to prove to them I'm right. And the goal of reconciliation is always God's glory, not mine. I mean, a lot of times, the pursuit of reconciliation can turn into, um, I got to clear my name, I got to clear my name, I got to clear my name. 
But true reconciliation, you're being reconciled to the truth. The aim is God's glory, and it goes beyond just clearing your name. And then finally, last week, we spent some time considering reconciliation between those in, this, in the same body of believers. I, w- I would call this those who are members of one another, those who are in covenant together, those who, when you see someone come up here for, for membership, they've read through a, a covenant that says, I am covenanting with you to be one with you so we can hold each other accountable, so we can rightly represent God in our community, in, this, in the beliefs that we hold. And we're on the same page, in short, is the way to say it. We found that it's usually the first step. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's usually where we screw it up royally. Easily. Because the quickest thing most of us want to do is pick up the phone and you're not going to believe what happened. Or turn to someone, whoever's standing there, some random stranger at the store, you're not going to believe what happened. We get real bent out of shape. You go straight to the person that you are at odds with. That's what we're supposed to do. Go straight to them. Reconciliation is needed because we sin against God and each other. And by God's design, sin is not to be winked at or perpetuated. We're to repent. So according to God, the thing that keeps reconciliation from happening is failure to repent from your sin. The aim of this thing that we call church discipline, which we're talking about in Matthew 18, is always reconciliation to God, to each other, and to the rest of the body. It's the next to the last step that is the most disturbing and sobering. This picture that you see of someone being, uh, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. You see a breaking of fellowship here. You don't see slandering and spray painting bad things about them on the walls. You, you do see a breaking of fellowship. You, you see, we're, we're not going to treat you as brother or sister because you're, you're not repenting. Your sin is bringing division in this body. And that is a very hard step. No one likes that. Churches across the nation have done away with Matthew 18 because this stinks. This is horrible. This is the least fun thing you could be a part of if it gets to that point. It's the next to the last step. What's the last step? Reconciliation. That's the last step. The last step's not, you're out here. The last step is reconciliation. The next to the last step is horrible. It makes me want to throw up when I think about it. It turns my stomach. It keeps me up at night. It is not good. Nobody should enjoy it. But we have to be obedient to the word. Because when we disregard it, we're saying, okay, God, your your design's okay. It's kind of good. Except that. So I'm going to disregard it. And a lot of churches disregard it because it's hard. The very sobering next to the last step is being put out of community. This happens because an individual... Because an individual's lack of repentance makes reconciliation impossible. And that is a problem because misrepre- division misrepresents Jesus. So my question is, how does division misrepresent Jesus? I want to make sure we're all on the same page here because it's a problem. How does division and lack of repentance and withholding forgiveness misrepresent Jesus? Where's bride? What does that mean? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those aren't just quippy sayings and cute proverbs. Those are Words from the divine God, the only true God. 
What else? How else does it misrepresent Jesus? Yep. Remember perichoresis? Can someone tell me what perichoresis is? Sort of. <laughs> Three in one? Yeah? Like a dance. It's a blur. There's movement. It's beautiful. So it's a very deliberate and sobering and sad step to say to someone, you're no longer treated as a member of this body because your sin has brought division among the people who are called to be one. Those are horrible words to have to speak. That's why it's so important we don't screw the process up from the beginning. It's really important we, we do what this says from the beginning and we don't find ourselves floundering three steps in thinking, oh, I forgot number one, I only did half of number two. Because this is a horrible place to get. But you'll get there quickly if you mishandle this. Sin is corrosive. It, 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 it's deceitful. It makes you think you're right when you're completely wrong. And we have to have hard conversations so that we don't all find ourselves just talking about how right we are at the expense of someone else's opportunity to repent and be reconciled to you, to the body, and to God. It's really important we get this right. Division within the body is not something we can take lightly. The reality is that the person who is told those sad words, you're not welcome in the community of believers here because there's no repentance and we're going to have to put you out of fellowship. A person who hears that will do one of two things. First, they may walk away saying, I'm right, and all of you are wrong. See, if you do it this way, they've said, individual, I'm dismissing you, you're wrong. Okay, I want to take someone else. Because when you go to take someone else, you've got to tell them what's going on, because you, you were obedient to the first step. When you go to take someone else, and that second step, if you are in fact wrong and misjudged something in the first step, now you have opportunity for that second person not just to get on board and throw stones with you, but to speak truth to you and say, hey, you might be a little off kilter here. Let's talk about this before we go and do this second step. Let's work through this. Let's pray about this. Hopefully there's a sober-mindedness there within the two that, is, um, that provides balance and encouragement towards truth. And then when you go to the point of telling the church and you have a whole church saying, gosh, that is sin and there needs to be repentance then the option for the person who's told that is to say, you know what, you're all completely wrong, and guess who's right? Number one, later. Or, the more hopeful response is I need to repent of my sin and ask forgiveness because the church is too important and valuable of a treasure for me to walk away from in my sin. Why would I do that? That's what we hope for, and guess what? That's real. It's God's design. It's not just counseling or practical relationship advice. It's God saying, I want y'all to be reconciled. I want y'all to be one. I don't want there to be division. It misrepresents me. These are the steps and make sure it's really clear. Putting someone out of the body is a really horrible thing, but it's needed if it's necessary. And I'll define if it's necessary by my design. Y'all be obedient to the design. And we hope that the design brings about reconciliation. However, this cannot ever happen in the level of honesty that we hope for, the repentance that we would hope for. If you're the one sinned against, if you don't take step one, that can't happen. It can't pan out like that. This beautiful picture of someone saying, you know what? 
Thank you for telling me I'm wrong. Have you ever had someone tell you that? Have you ever said to someone, hey, what's going on there? Um, I see something askew. And have you ever had someone say, you're right. Thank you. It's really encouraging. Not because you can say, yeah, I'm generally right. (laughs) But it's encouraging because you see someone not winking at their sin. You see sin being dealt with the way God says to deal with it. Put sin to death. Don't dabble. Don't wound it. Don't experiment. Kill it. Kill it. That's what we do. So this is a beautiful thing when you see this repentance and this movement towards reconciliation. Now, I don't want to miss the connections in God's divine timing. On Wednesdays, we've been considering what it means to be reconciled and forgive while on Sundays we've been considering being hated by the world and what the role of the Holy Spirit is. Living in harmony with one another, working towards reconciliation, and eager to forgive. Always ready to forgive. That's hard work. And the Word says that there are some who have done it before us, and we need to watch what they've done, and we need to consider it, because it's by God's design supposed to be an encouragement for us to walk in truth rightly. You don't have to turn there. But listen to these words from Hebrews 6.12. Hebrews 6.12 reminds us that we're not to be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You don't have to turn there, but write it down in your notes. Hebrews 6.12, do not be sluggish. If I want to skip step one and disregard step two and just act like something didn't happen, I'm being sluggish. Do not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. That means look back at those that you have walked with in the faith, maybe those who are older than you, who have, who have been through maybe something that you haven't been through. Maybe they've been through the exact same thing that you've been through, and they handled it differently. But observe there and, and imitate that, because that's, that, they're doing what Jesus said. And so do what Jesus said by imitating that. Hebrews 13, 7 says, write that down in your notes too, and read it later. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. One author notes that we cannot imitate or be inspired by what we don't know. There's things in the word that say, imitate this. Be inspired by this. Be encouraged by this. Watch that. Pay attention to the details and then live it. But we can't imitate or be inspired by what we don't know. Hebrews 13, 7 and Hebrews 6, 12. He says it's part of our pleasant Christian duty to preserve and proclaim the faith-sustaining stories of Christ's suffering swans. And the point that he's getting to is that swans, I've been working on this all day, Swans sing sweetly when they suffer. Try to say that five times fast. Swans sing sweetly when they suffer. It's a reference from the book that Ben cited on Sunday morning, The Hidden Smile of God. So by God's design, it's helpful for us to consider those who have gone before us and been sinned against, yet mercifully did not withhold forgiveness, did not let a root of bitterness spring up and by it many become defiled. So I'll open it up. Do you guys have any particular examples that could inspire us to be imitators of? Those who have gone before us, 
Maybe you know them personally. Maybe you've read about them. Maybe they're just names that jump into your mind when you think of maybe kind of heroes of the faith. But people that we can be reminded of, even as we sit here, so that we might be inspired and imitate those lives. Their experience matters. I want you all to see that. Sometimes I think we get a bad rap of saying, experience doesn't matter. It's only doctrine. Now, doctrine is really important. But evidently, experience matters because it says to be imitators of those who've done this. So I'm asking about the experiences. Who, who, who comes to mind for y'all? Polycarp. Polycarp? Why? It almost seems like we planned that, but we didn't. That's beautiful. Beautiful example. What else? Who else? Say that again? Yeah, and why? Yeah. Yeah. Who else? I thought a little Corey Tinboom, suffering in a concentration camp, witnessing the horror of hatred and affliction in ways most of us can't even conceive, yet she steps out and boldly proclaims, in all of the world, the Germans are the most to be pitied. That is a huge statement. These, this population that has afflicted her and her people greatly, she steps out and says, don't pity me, pity them. It shows a sign of Ready to forgive? Should, it, should, you be, uh, should you have the opportunity? It shows a sign of not holding a grudge. It shows a sign of perspective that is greater than what a lot of us have, myself included. sweet. Notice it's not like easy circumstances where these matters usually come up. Y'all think any others? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of incredible stories to consider, and, it, and they're worth considering. I would say if you're like, ah, I'm not into reading that kind of stuff, I would encourage you to be into reading that kind of stuff because God says that there's something that we can learn there. I'll, I'll end with one because I think most of y'all have probably seen the video on Facebook. Gianna Jessen, the one who was aborted, but not really. She, uh, her story, uh, it's like a 16-minute video, so I wasn't going to show, I was going to show it, but then I'm not because um, I figured most of you have seen it. Who's seen it? Does Gianna Jessen, okay, a lot of you. Um, she's an abortion survivor 
And she said, I mean, I'm looking at her and, and she had, what did she have? Cerebral palsy, the gift of cerebral palsy, as she said it. And I'm looking, I'm thinking, if anyone could have a chip on their shoulder, this gal could have a chip on her shoulder. I mean, think of all the responses she could give. Think of how hateful she could be. Think of how she could pretty much stand up in front of a crowd and say whatever she wanted. And everyone would have to just shut it and listen, because she's an abortion survivor. And she could just tout that however she wants. However, she says, God has a way. God has a way of making the most miserable thing beautiful. I've met my biological mom. I have forgiven her. I'm a Christian. She said it plainly. It's like, I'm a Christian. I've forgiven her. I'm not, I'm not holding a grudge. I don't sit like Esau and plan to get my revenge one day. I'm a Christian. I forgive her. Consider the other responses she could have given. The hatred. She could have responded with spite, revenge, maliciousness, bitterness. Instead, she says, I know I am hated because I declare life. And then she challenges and says, stand up, at least be willing to be hated. Or at the end of the day, is it really all about you? I've been hated since conception, but loved by God. Man, is that inspirational? Yes. Does it go beyond something that's a quippy story? Absolutely. Because I believe that what's happening here is what Titus 2.10 talks about. See, these Christian women that we've cited here and, and other Christian men only respond to being sinned against in this way because of the truth of God's word and the very real gift of the Holy Spirit. Titus 2.10 states that in everything we're to actually adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. Write that down. Titus 2.10 says that we, in fact, when we're doing these things, we are adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. So for those who would downplay doctrine, I would say don't because you're to adorn it. And just like you cannot be inspired by that which you do not know, you also cannot adorn that which you do not know. So experience is important and doctrine is important. And I would say that our Realities we have through experience are come to full fruition and realized most beautifully under the umbrella of the doctrine and the truth of God's word. But put on the doctrine, adorn it. So when we're sinned against and we respond biblically with truth, keeping Christ central yet fully convinced as to what we believe, we're always ready to forgive, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, pursuing peace as much as it depends on us, Romans 12, giving an account for the hope with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter, okay with the possibility that we may in fact be wrong, which we all stink at, yet still fully convinced that we're not, which we're generally better at. When we do that, we adorn a doctrine that communicates the truth about our great God. We do not hold grudges, keep records of wrong. We do not speak to everyone else when we feel we are sinned against. We go to that person and we do all we can to work towards repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. If we're unable, we take a friend. If that does not work, we put it before the church. And throughout this whole tedious and careful process, it's never about our own vindication, vengeance, and glory. It's a horrible, hard, sometimes painful, physically painful process. But throughout the whole process, it's not about our vengeance and our vindication and our glory. We handle our differences with biblical carefulness because it's the glory of God that's to be put on display and guarded. And all others 
All other matters are of lesser importance, if any importance at all. That said, we're going to transition to Genesis 34, where we see one of God's children sinned against in what most of us would consider one of the most vile ways. This is a hard chapter. What we're dealing with in chapter 34 is rape and sexual immorality. I am always challenged by expositional teaching because when it came to the part about incest, I would have skipped that chapter. And when it came to the part about rape and sexual immorality, it would have been a lot easier to move on to 35 where God blesses and renames Jacob. But expositionally, we we have to deal with these matters. And I want to just state up front, I know that there may be experiences even within this room where this chapter may just stir things that um, are very hard and very difficult. And so I want to be tender towards that. Um, Because the sin dealt with here is disgusting and really hard. Um, Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Let's start actually in 33.18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money uh, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob. Remember, she was mentioned before, so we would know who she is. Kind of where she fell with all of her brothers. She was the only female mentioned in the previous chapters. Went out to see the women of the land. Why is Jacob in Shechem? Before we move any further, why is Jacob in Shechem? He veered away from his brother. And he's disobedient. He's supposed to go to Bethel. If you look at the previous chapters, we see God calling him back to where he set up the altar before. Leave Laban's land and go to Bethel. He didn't go to Bethel. He went on his way, saw Esau, lied about going to Seir, settled in Succoth for a while, and ended up in Shechem. He's there because of disobedience. Because God said, go to Bethel. He lied to Esau about where he was going, and he, his path got skewed, and he ends up here. Now consider what Dinah is doing. What did it say? She, she went out to see the women of the land. Why do you think she's going out to see the women of the land? A lot of brothers. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Meet the neighbors, maybe? I'm really guessing it's not much different than what any of y'all would do if you moved to a new place. What is the standard and expectation of women in this land? I have a lot of brothers, and I want to know who my peers will be in this new land. She's not doing anything different than we would do in a new city. The problem is she never should have been in this city in the first place. You've got to see that from the get-go. Now look at verses 2 through 4. And when Shechem... The son of Hamor. Now, the name of the city is Shechem, and Hamor, who is the king, his son, the prince, is named Shechem. I think, unless I really screwed that up. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. 
So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now, every one of you should be affected by that. Filthy. Horribly heartbreaking and sad. Yes, they should not have been in Shechem. That's no excuse for what happens here. This is every father's worst nightmare. As a dad, I read these verses. I just cringe. This man, Shechem, the king's son, seized Dinah, raped her, humiliated her, and spoke tenderly to her. I've spoken with and heard stories from women who have experienced this horror. The scars often last a lifetime. The fear and violation are so great that you can begin to think that you're a totally different person after this kind of experience than you were before. Note a few dynamics in verse 3. It says, His soul was drawn to her. This is not poetic. This is not silver lining here, particularly. His soul is unredeemed and evil. It says he loves her. Well, his standard for showing love is completely of the flesh. What is our definition of what love is? Patient? Kind? Not self-seeking? He showed none of those things. That's all that this guy knows. He spoke tenderly. He spoke tenderly. This is often the mode of operation for your common dirtbag. They look at a woman who's physically appealing and pleasing to them. They speak whatever tender words are needed to draw her in for the purpose of satisfying their own perverted and immoral desires. Look at verse 4. Get me this girl for my wife. This is backwards. You don't consummate a marriage before the actual covenant union exists. Consider the union of Isaac and Rebekah. What were some of the differences between that and this? We studied it at length, like an eight-part series. What's the difference between this and what we saw with Isaac and Rebekah? Yeah. Sought out. Very character. Yeah. What else was involved in the process? Waited. Yes. Self control, patience, not self seeking. Prayer was involved. Um, God was involved. We don't see that here. We see a guy says, God who? She's hot. I'm going to do what I want to do. It's filthy. Respectful pursuit, intentional provision for the family, prayer, thankfulness, God. All these things are void. And look at verses 5 through 7. It gets, I mean, it's a, the way this unfolds blows my mind. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. Can you imagine being the dad that hears that news? But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Hamor, Shechem's dad. Go out to speak with Jacob. Make nice with the new people in the city. My son raped his daughter. 
At least I could take a pie. It's the most ridiculous setting you've ever seen. He goes out. So Jacob held his peace until they came, and Hamor the father of Shechem went out to Jacob to speak with him. Verse 7, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. It's sad that it even has to be said. It happens in our culture today. There's human trafficking There's a local ministry called Save the Girl, I believe is what it's called, because human trafficking exists. It's sick. It's perverse. To say this is an outrageous thing, such a thing should not be done, feels ridiculous to even have to say it. But the sin is so great in this land that it has to be said. Get me this girl for my wife. So Jacob's hacked but cautious. Jacob has had issues with boldness in the past. Some commentators think he has that issue here. I don't know. I try to put myself in his shoes and think about what that news would be like. when The king of the land comes and says, oh, this is normal. This is what we want. This is the king's son we're talking about. Jacob needs his sons at this point. There is a time where it's appropriate to come together as a family. And take care of issues or sort through problems. There's no doubt that this is one of those times. Look at verse 7. I mean, this gives us insight into the family's view of what's happened. This should not happen. While in verse 8, it gives us insight into the world's view of what happened. In verse 7, we see Dinah's brothers indignant. They're, They're angry at this perceived unfairness and injustice. Rightly so. If you're not angry in that situation, there's something wrong with you. Very angry, it says, because this outrageous thing should not have been done. Yet in verse 8, verses 8 through 12, in the very next verse, we see a very different perspective. Hamor, the king of Shechem, not only says that they should appease his wicked son's desires, but let's take it a step further. Let's just trade daughters altogether. Dwell, trade, and make money, because that's what it's all about. We'll just be happy and rich, and all of our sexual perversion will be satisfied. That's wickedness. It doesn't just stop with Dinah. Your heart should be very heavy for Dinah, but see the dwindling effect of sin when you see every other daughter of God's family brought into play. This is horrible. In verse 12, he tops it all off by saying, look at verse 12. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I'll give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Dwell with us, trade with us, and just name your price. Money's not an issue. Consider Jacob. Consider his, put yourself in his shoes. This guy's son raped this guy's daughter. And he comes up and says, let's just trade daughters. And land, and we'll be able to be happy. And you know, money's not an issue. You name your price. Consider what it must have been like for Dinah. You know, I think Hamor is talking here a lot of the ways that we do with God. I think he recognized some of the shame. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to make it right. Yeah. It was a shotgun wedding. Yep. And Covered up. And covering up with money and uh-huh. these other things. And don't we do the same when we go to God and try to? 
bargain. Mm -hmm. I'll never do this again. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What message did that send to Dinah about her worth? Well, I wonder if she was overhearing the conversation. Dad, what are you going to say? What message does it send to her about her worth? What message does it send to Jacob about this new kingdom's expectation for his daughters and his sons? Take their daughters. There's a distinct difference between the way God-fearing men view women and the way the world views women. It's a distinct difference. Here we see it exponentially, I guess. It's not our natural tendency to shepherd, care for, and protect women. I would offer that apart from God and the work of His Spirit, you have no good intentions. Before the flood, it said God looked down and He saw that every intention of every heart was only evil all the time. You don't have some good intentions that God sweeps in and decides He's going to use them for His good. If not for a heart that's completely changed by God, run through by the truth of Christ and inspired moment by moment by the Holy Spirit, we have no good intentions. It's because of God's design that we do not treat women like prizes to be bought and bartered. It is by God's design that we love our wives as Christ loved the church, giving our lives for them. It's by God's design that a man would take his daughter on a little date to have lunch to show her how a man treats a woman. It's by God's design that a man would model for his sons how you do and do not treat a woman. What's to be expected in the possible future spouse? And what happens is when you have generations void of these truths, you end up with a place like Shechem. That's what you end up with. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. Verses 1 through 7. This is a God-breathed definition of godlessness. And I want you to see what God has chosen to say as godlessness. And then I want you to consider what we have seen in Genesis 34. Understand this, that in the last days there will, be, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. I mean, do you hear? Can't you just hear? We'll trade daughters and we'll share livestock and everything will be fine. Name your price. Can't you just hear it there? Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Love that that's in there. Your parent, you might want to mark that verse. Ungrateful unholy, heartless, and act like what happens in Genesis 34 does not happen unless you are dealing with someone who is heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, 
can't be both. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, Jacob. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Sad reality, this is partly Jacob's fault. You turn back to Genesis 34, the sad reality is that this is partly Jacob's fault. He should have avoided such people. Now, I want to be careful here. I want to be really, 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 really careful here because some people, maybe even some sitting here, have been victimized and there really was nothing that could have been done about it. But I would say for Jacob, it's different. What could Jacob have done to prevent something like this from happening? To the whole situation. Go to Bethel. There's not as many unappeasable rapists in Bethel. Sad. Sad circumstances. Two cities could be so different. What else? Yeah. 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 You're a daughter in God's family. What else could have been done? Yeah, that's a, that's a huge thing. I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, don't let your daughter roam unaccompanied in a land that you know nothing about. It's not a matter of trust. Dad, don't you trust me? I trust you. I'm sending my meanest sons with you. Who, who's my biggest, baddest son? Okay, you go. Take your sword. Don't introduce your household to him. There's a lot of modern day examples of this. Don't try to gain trust by taking your hand off the situation and saying, hey, yeah, whatever, I trust you. Sometimes it's not a matter of trust. It's a matter of protection. Yep. Yep. He had already bought land. He had already seen something of the way they moved. I mean, the whole story, when you take in all the details, it doesn't get prettier. At this point, I would like to just read the rest of the chapter, and next week we'll spend some time considering if they handled it the right way. Look at verse 13. I'm just going to read through the chapter. Considering how horrible it is, what has happened, consider what's about to happen. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully. Now notice Jacob didn't answer. The sons of Jacob answered because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Now at this point, you can imagine the men of Shechem. (laughs) All right, we're all going to get circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. There should be things about this deal where you're saying, I don't think that's the most biblical way. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. At this point, if I'm a Shechemite, I'm saying, yeah, uh uh-uh, no. Their words pleased Hamor. Get that. Well, you're going to have to be circumcised. Fantastic. 
How perverse do you have to be? Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. Oh, that's all? And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted in Jacob's daughter. Perversely delighted. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. How screwed up does a household have to be for a vindictive, horrible, mean-spirited rapist to be the most honored in the household? He was the most honored. That's hard. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of the city. So this is going to be a good deal, men. Um, There's just this one thing. These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this one little condition. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. One people. They want to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, when every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. And on the third day, when they were sore, it says that. You know why? Because they were sore. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Wow. That was a big move. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in the houses, and they captured and plundered. That's quite the turn of events. They got them to circumcise themselves, and when they were sore, they killed all of them. At this point, all of us would probably want to be high-fiving Simeon and Levi. Look Look at that! Man! The reality is, we should probably be asking them to put their sword away, because it's not an appropriate way to deal with a problem. We'll talk more about that next week. This is a hard chapter. Hard, hard chapter. But I think God wants us to see some things in the way that they rightly handled and the way that they mishandled some of the things in the process. So um, I don't really want to answer any questions about this chapter. So I'm going to pray (laughs) and uh, we'll be dismissed. I'll hang around if anyone has any questions. Uh, Lord, we thank you for our time. Uh, I'm thankful that your word does what you say it will, no matter if the chapter is seemingly difficult to us or seemingly simple to us. Um, It's all way more complex than we see at first glance, and we desperately need the Spirit to understand the deeper truths. Uh, Lord, you are unspeakably good. The thing that overwhelms me is to know that while all these things were happening, you were not snoozing. The realities that you revealed to us in the preach word on Sunday tell us that there is some plan going on here. And if I'm Jacob, and if I'm Dinah, and if I'm Simeon, and if I'm Levi, 
I'm going to have a hard time seeing that. But that doesn't change the fact that you are a sovereign God. That what Shechem meant for evil, you meant for good and mean for good. Lord, that is so difficult. It is very hard. There's really nothing simple about that. Uh, So I pray that as we go on our way tonight and as we continue to consider some of these scriptures in the coming days or the coming hours, hopefully at least, uh, that you would give us insight and wisdom, discernment, understanding, maybe peace that exceeds understanding when understanding is not to be had. Uh, Lord, you're very good. We thank you for our time tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.